This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, it never ends, it never stops. It's the ongoing LRT debate. Hamilton will lose one billion dollars in provincial cash uh, to another uh, another community uh, for, that was, of course, promised here for LRT if council decides they do not want the project. That's what MPP Ted McMeekin said. Let's find out exactly what he did say and bring in Fred Mayor, uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger, City of Hamilton, and he is with us now. Hello, Mayor Fred. How are you today? I am uh, great, Scott. Thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We always appreciate it when you are on the show. Has uh, MPP Ted McMeekin added clarity to this for council and the city uh, well, of Hamilton? This is not a new message, but uh, kind of reconfirmed once again that this is not uh, you know a billion dollars earmarked for Hamilton to do whatever it wants to do. This is a, a this is a Metrolink funding for transit that uh, has been identified to uh, to do a project that uh, we asked for uh, very directly uh, so many, many months ago, uh, you know, almost a year ago now, uh, you know, and, and, and in many you know, iterations over the last 10 years, we've been suggesting that LRT ought to be part of the financial uh, contribution from the province of Ontario. So we've asked for this. Uh, the province of Ontario has delivered it. We are we are talking about not just an LRT line, but the entire blast network. And I think people need to understand this is not just a, a one line down the down the road. We're looking for the whole package of expansion through different areas of our city as well. And that uh, is funding that is yet to be realized, but I think is in the offing. So yeah, I think it's a it's a clear message from the. Uh, the person that's closest to the premier that says, uh, you know, this is not uh, money you can decide to do with what you will. It's for LRT funding. It's for the funding that you ask for. If you, uh, you know, don't want to go there, then uh, you really basically uh, start all over again and, uh, you know, bring another plan, but you're back into the bottom of the list in terms of the funding queue. Uh, playing devil's advocate here, Mayor, uh, didn't the premier say before the election that it was up to Hamilton to choose how they wanted to use this? And did she not say LRT or BRT, although I understand the BRT sum was a lot less than for LRT? Um, you know what? I mean, I think I think they caught the premier on an off day. I mean, I can't you, you can't expect the premier to know, uh, you know, every nuance of every project in every part of the province. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that those statements have since been clarified by the uh, by the minister of transport and by Ted McMeekin, our local minister, who was the uh, who was the uh, parliamentary assistant to the premier. I think he speaks on the premier's behalf. He said this before, and he's reiterating that again. So I mean, I think uh, you know this this is the clear message that uh, I think people need to understand and appreciate that this is not something that uh, we can just jockey around and manipulate to uh, to our own greater end and you know what so for those for the folks that argue that you know there's other infrastructure that needs resources of course there is uh that's the same uh, and that's the same the same truth rely you know is in kitchener waterloo as it is in ottawa as it is in toronto and all of them are pursuing uh, significant light rail transit projects to the betterment of their community uh and it's transit funding it is not road funding it is not uh, you know, water and wastewater funding, it's transit funding. And that, you know, for those that suggest that, you know, we could peel off $600 million for uh, for a lesser transit, you know, operation and then uh, use the rest of the money for transportation or for, uh, for road repairs, uh, that's just not the way this funding works. And I think most people that are, you know, making issue with this understand that. Uh, one councillor has suggested that since there is an election coming in the, in the future, in the future, that somehow there is leverage there, that we can leverage this into some other sort of project. What's your comment on that? Uh, that that is really starting to play some partisan politics here. Uh, you know that that's that's going to hang in your hat on some other party coming into power that might have a different message. Uh, so far, as, I, uh, as I've understood it, uh, Mr. Brown, who I think this councillor is advocating on behalf, has said quite clearly that he would honour the wishes of the municipality. And so LRT has been our focus. Uh, that is what we asked the province of Ontario to provide. Uh, they have provided, and uh, you know, un- until we're told otherwise by this council, uh, then uh, we are going to continue to proceed towards implementing uh, LRT. Having said that, uh, you know, there are some talking about, uh, you know, referendums, and I think that's, uh, that's kind of a, a cute way of getting around having to take responsibility on a straight-up uh, uh, vote on this issue and, uh, you know, trying to make, make democracy the issue as if this hasn't been discussed in the broader community for, for the better part of 10 years. So, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really kind of, you know, surprised that we're still 
sabotaging ourselves uh, with a, a billion-dollar investment that uh, many of the same people that you just talked about said only a fool would uh, turn down a billion-dollar investment in their community. And uh, some other council have said, uh, you know, this project is done, let's just get on with it and now have, uh, you know, morphed into a different tune. Uh, and I should also add that Patrick Brown did say on this show that he would honor uh, any of those commitments that were made by uh, previous governments in relation to LRT. Sure. Uh, what is it about 11th hour in this city, Mayor, that this, this stuff seems to happen? What, we get cold feet. Why is that? Is it, is, it, is it partially council's responsibility for not helping people, making people feel more at ease, or is, is it just losing to the power of lobbyists? Uh, look, I mean, I I, uh, I can't speak for uh, you know individual counselors out there and what they're uh, what they're experiencing. I, I this, these are the kinds of projects that require leadership. You know, it requires someone that understands all the variables of the information that we've been given, and you know, all all members of council have been fully informed on all of the uh, all of the issues around uh, LRT and the, and the benefits of LRT. Uh, that those that kind of information we could never provide to the public at large to the fullness of what uh, members of council have, and they need to uh, look after the best interest of the community as a whole. So retrenching into partisan politics and, you know, saying things like, uh, you know, residents in my ward don't support it, or, you know, uh, folks in, uh, you know, in my uh, my particular geographic area may not uh, be particularly fond or won't get benefit from this. Uh, this is a project that everyone in our entire city gets benefit from. You know, the, uh, the growth that will come as a result of the, uh, the economic uplift that, that comes as a result of an LRT line in the lower city uh, is going to generate more tax dollars, which is to the greater benefit of our entire city. Uh, the blast network that we're all advancing and looking for, to, forward to fulfilling uh, will expand our transit system throughout the entirety of our city, from the, the mountain to you know water down to Stony Creek to, uh, to Ancaster. Uh, all of those areas will get better service as we evolve our blast network. So you know what? You tell me why. Uh, the, the, we see a retrenching now and some jockeying and gamesmanship going on as a result of LRT, other than we've got some uh, nervous Nellies that, uh, you know, apparently uh, you know, aren't prepared to show the kind of leadership that this kind of project needs. You know, I, I, I can totally understand the nervous Nelly statement. Um, wh- what about those that say there's a lack of information? We just don't know. We just don't know the ridership. We just don't know this. We don't know that. I mean, how do you balance predicting the future with the information we do have? <laughs> well, so so like, like most major projects that we do, you know, and I think of, you know, what have, we, what have we done in the past? Uh, you know, major road works, the expressway. We had no idea what the economic uptake was going to be as a result of the expressway. There was an expectation that there would be significant development uh, in and around uh, some of the some of the uh, de- development areas uh, around the expressway, and, and that, in fact, has happened. So there was no written guarantee ahead of time that this was going to occur as a result of your work. But there are, you know, best best reasonable uh, estimates of what experiences other communities have had, what other other transit lines have been able to do in terms of ridership uptake. Uh, that's information that's readily available out there, and all of it shows that, uh, that there is significant ridership uptake when you do an LRT, and that there's an economic development uplift that comes with the LRT investment that is also significant and not to be, uh, not to be uh, you know, uh, 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 Set aside. So, if you look at Kitchener Waterloo right now, uh, Scott, uh, they're they're closing on the end of their development of that project, and they uh, they are, have already seen uh, significant uh, investments happening. Buildings go up as a result of the LRT that isn't yet even open, and uh, that is quantifiable, and that is information that uh, people can easily see and and be aware of. And uh, you know, it's real. It's not imaginary. This is uh, this is real economic uplift that. Uh, on existing infrastructure that is to the greater benefit of our entire community. It's I find it fascinating when people say we don't need this now and we'll revisit it in five or ten years. Any Anybody who grew up in southern Ontario or has grown up in southern Ontario over the last 10, 20, 30 years mm-hmm. and, and especially travels regularly to the greater Toronto-Hamilton area or through the greater Toronto-Hamilton area, specifically towards Toronto, knows where and what direction it's going in and the lack of of, of public transportation there 
there has been. Do you think we can get ahead of this curve? I, I, I know that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to get ahead of the curve here. But how do you make people realize that by the time this thing's built, we're in a different world? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking 10 years down the road. We're talking uh, at a time when we will, will already have an expanded GO service in Hamilton. Uh, you know, the, the Centennial Parkway, uh, you know, additional GO train location uh, was part of the $1.2 billion funding envelope for this uh, public transportation initiative. They're going to start that in uh, 2017 and 2018 and finish in 2019. Uh, those, are, those are important investments, and you want to interconnect that as much as humanly possible with a with a, uh, a, a similar kind of rail transit system that kind of integrates our integrated transportation system through the greater Toronto and Hamilton area. So, uh, and you know what, they, they, we have lots of people that say you should be aligning your, your funding requests with the kind of funding that the province and the federal government is uh, now advocating for and, hmm. and actually funding. And in reality, they are focused on both levels of government on transit investments. Yeah. I mean, anyone that doesn't understand and see that is, uh, is living in a different world than I'm living in. Uh, they're making massive investments in transit in Toronto. Uh, they're making massive investments in GO Transit throughout the uh, quarter and ultimately heading all the way to Niagara, including uh, heading over to Kitchener-Waterloo. Uh, the federal government has already made statements that uh, one of their top priorities issues is going to be transit funding you know, across the country. And so we need to take advantage of what that alignment means for us and not trying to buck the trend and say, well, you know what, even though you're investing in transit, we're, we're going to focus on, on other areas, then you can pretty much predict that the funding isn't going to flow to mm-hmm. Hamilton. Yeah, good so point. Let's align ourselves. Let's make sure that we're tapping into the resources that are available to us out there. And let's begin to work on a system that, uh, that we can then expand into the future that will benefit the entire city. Uh, we've got uh, about two minutes left. What do you say to the average Hamiltonian who may be having a problem with this, who doesn't get it, who doesn't, who doesn't see the vision that you see? What, what do you say to them? Uh, you know what? I mean, I, I would say that there's a, there's a, there's a rationale to, uh, to all of this. This is a, this is a visionary project that uh, is, is, is not going to turn the city of Hamilton upside down, but is going to have a transformative effect, and certainly in the lower city, that uh, will provide a many more public transportation options for people that uh, may or may not own a car into the future. And it really is getting out of, ahead of congestion issues that uh, are coming our way. And you don't have to travel far, as you have pointed out, to, to go through to Toronto or try and get to Niagara these days. Uh, the roads are seeing congestion. We're going we're gonna to be suffering from that as well 10 years down the road. And we can get out ahead of this problem sooner rather than later so that 10 years from now we have a system in place to address those issues. Uh, let's not make the same mistake that Toronto made where they didn't invest in their transit system for about 40 years. And now they're left with a massive transit problem that uh, is going to take an enormous amount of money to, to help resolve if they ever can get on top of resolving that with the capacity they, ha- they have. So we have an opportunity to actually forward think this thing be uh, be uh, progressive and uh, be aggressive about not having the same problems and finding solutions today that will benefit us tomorrow. Mayor Fred Eisenberger has been with the City of Hamilton. LRT cash, of course, is for the LRT. Mayor, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The debate continues to rage about the federally imposed carbon price. We all know it's coming. Very little of us know really how it all works or what it's about. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has given the provinces until 2018 to adopt a carbon pricing scheme. But how will this affect the pocketbook of everyday Canadians? And is it good politics when he's assembling... Uh, all the premiers together with the environment, uh, environmental minister uh, to talk about how we do this moving forward. And then he announces on a press conference uh, at virtually the same time, this is how we're going to move forward on this. Uh, is that good politics or not? To talk more about all of this, Ian Lee is with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Hello, Ian. How are you today? I'm doing just fine, Scott. Are you surprised at the way the premier, uh, the prime minister, rather handled this? Uh, I understand that all the premiers were in a meeting uh, with the environment minister at this point, and then he sort of let the cat out of the bag. I, I was because, of course, this is the exact opposite of what they said during the campaign. 
uh, when they were running, they said, we're not going to be uh, heavy-handed like that Harper government was and, you know, just announce things without consultation and getting uh, buy-in from the different um, uh, stakeholders. Um, and he made it very, very clear that he was not going to do that, that he was not going to act in that, that uh, cavalier or heavy-handed manner. And, and so it was, I think it's quite surprising um, that he's gone and done this, because, as I said, it's the really the opposite of his, um, you know, Sunny Ways uh, approach that he ha, um, became his signature uh, in terms of how he was going to govern. And, and this is really the opposite of what he said. Isn't he really, though, playing both sides? And in the end, isn't that good politics? reason I'm saying this, I mean, obviously, he what he did yesterday, lots lots of the premiers are upset about it. On the other hand, he kind of lowballed everybody by giving them really, really low targets, some of which, say, uh, aren't high enough, yes. uh, therefore sort of straddling the fence and going right down the middle, which he does beautifully. Yes, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. That's a, that's precisely the point. I mean, he's trying to. Um, um, on the one hand, he has made a commitment to carbon tax, and so there's people out there in the population. I think I, some say it's a majority. I think it's a minority of people who are really deeply committed uh, to a carbon tax. Um, and uh, but he's made that commitment, and he wants to honor it. On the other hand. He also made this other commitment that he was going to be sunny ways and negotiate with people and not and not um, act, as I said, like the mm-hmm. Harper government. So he's really, in a sense, trapped. He's between a rock and a hard place uh, on on this issue. And so I think it's going to be uh, very difficult uh, for him, especially, Scott, as more and more people become more fully informed on what does a carbon tax mean? I mean, in the abstract, people say, yes, 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 carbon's bad, global warming. But I don't think most Canadians yet fully understand what it means. It means it's going to cost every consumer in this country a lot more to put gas in their car, to heat their house, and to buy things like groceries that use fossil fuels. I mean, everything uses fossil fuels, everything. Um, not only home heating, not only transportation, the production of food, the running of offices that have to be heated in the wintertime. And so what it's going to do is put significantly upward pressure on prices and inflation when wages are not growing uh, quickly. And I think once people start to understand that this means that their gas is going to go up, their home heating is going to go up, whether it's natural gas or, or oil. Um, and, and the cost of really many, many different things in the economy are going to go up. And the burden is going to fall on each of us as the end consumer. I think there's, I've actually, some students have said to me, no, 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 I'm not going to be paying it. It's going to go to the oil companies. Well, the oil companies and the gas companies and the pipeline companies are simply going to pass it on through increased prices to you and I. And I don't think that a lot of Canadians fully understand that. They may understand it in the abstract, in a very abstract way, but I don't think that they understand that this is going to hit every Canadian in the pocketbook and reduce the amount of discretionary income they have to spend on other things such as holidays or home renovations or things for their kids, etc., etc., uh, I guess the rubber is hitting the road for Ontarians already. They're saying the same thing now in regard to electricity. They all wanted uh, to be where we are, yet now are complaining that uh, yes. it's costing us way too much money. Exactly. And, and um, I think what I'm suggesting to you, is that, uh, to your listeners, is that there, once this recognition um, filters down and, if, and people start to realize this, I think there will be a backlash against the, uh, the Liberal governing in Ottawa, uh, because people are going to realize it's coming, as I said, out of their pocketbook. And so as a consequence, there's going to be the same backlash that is occurring that we saw happen with electricity prices uh, in Ontario. And, um, and so I think that um, they, the, they're at the early days of this um, process, and that they could end up in a situation similar to the wind government in Ontario when people realize this really is going to affect their standard of living, their cost of living, and the money in their pocket. Uh, BC, what are they doing differently? How, how are they the poster boy for all of this, and why does it not seem to be hurting them? 
Well, first off, they have a very modest carbon tax. Uh, very modest. Uh, I, I can't remember the amount. I did have it at my fingertips, and I've just forgotten. But it was a very modest amount. Um, um, Trudeau said just the other day, uh, in the House of Commons, no less, it's going to go to $50. I think in B.C. it's $10 a ton. It's gonna go to, uh, Trudeau said it's going to go to $50 a ton by 2022, which is just around the corner, relatively speaking. We're only talking five or six years away. And uh, so, again, I think that people are going to get a real shock once they realize how uh, how impactful this is going to be on their cost of living uh what uh what happens then i mean do we is it all of a sudden role reversal how, how do you move forward with a good conscience uh just because it's hurting your pocketbook um i i this is where i think that it's not it i don't think that there, this is going to end well because what i'm suggesting scott is is that uh, first off, once you roll this thing out and it gets embedded throughout the value chain, it's very difficult to roll back. It's not like uh, an increase or decrease in the uh, GST. You know, the Ontario can increase it, decrease it. It's relatively simple to change the computers. When you embed the carbon tax, it's going to be embedded upstream, upstream meaning at oil and gas companies, agriculture companies, and it's going to percolate down through the price system. And once it's set up, and you kick-started the thing into action, it's going to be very difficult to unwind. And so what you'll end up, just as we have with Ontario at the Fed contracts, it's very difficult to unwind this, uh, call it social uh, electricity engineering, because you assign all kinds of long-term contracts, people become dependent on them to buy the equipment, called the solar panels. And so once you, even though everyone may be filled with buyer's remorse and regret, and once they realize the full consequences, it's very uh, difficult to unwind it. Very difficult. They will say, what about the full consequences of climate change? Well, Ian? this is their counter-argument. They're trying to invoke a moral argument. But as we go further down the road, as people become more informed on the issue, um, and, uh, and this will come out in the fullness of time through shows like yours and print media and television, and people will start to focus like a laser beam. I'm talking ordinary citizens. And when they discover... That Canada is responsible for 1.6% of the total emissions in the world, they're going to quickly realize this is not going to solve the problems of the world. Hmm. This is posturing, symbolic posturing. If they, I've said this over and over, anywhere time I get a chance to, Scott, if these people, and these meaning those deeply committed environmentalists, were really serious about global warming, then they would say, let's go to where the problem is, not to where the problem is not. And the number one emitter, this is hard data, agreed to by people around the world, the number one emitter is China, which emits 25% of the world. The number two emitter is the United States, and the number three emitter is India. Those three countries are responsible for the, uh, the vast majority of GHG in the world. Why? Because those three countries use very large disproportionate amounts of coal. What that means is, if we were really, really serious, which I argue they are not, then they would say, we must do everything in our power to focus like a laser beam, to use Bill Clinton's famous phrase, on those three countries to get them off coal. So there's two dimensions to the focusing. A, the worst three in the world, China, India, U.S., Number two, get them off coal. Are we doing that in our policies here in Canada? Absolutely not. Are we even, in fact, we're actually making the problem worse by not constructing pipelines to the West Coast in order to ship the much cleaner natural gas over to India and to China so that they can switch from using coal, which is the dirtiest of the filthiest of the dirty of all the fossil fuels, they are trying to stop pipelines from shipping a much cleaner substitute energy source called natural gas to China, which would allow it to become much cleaner and emit a lot less. That's why I say environmentalists and those people who support these policies are not being serious. They are do engaging in political grandstanding and symbolic politics because at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the year, Canada is producing one point. That's one decimal six. One one hundredth of the world, one one hundredth of the world's of GHG. The big emitters, overwhelmingly, they're enormous emitters, China, 
India, America. And because, not because they're evil or bad, but because they use coal to a very high degree. China, two-thirds of all of its energy comes from coal. And coal, everyone agrees, is by far and away the worst of the fossil fuels. And yet, is this policy going to do anything about China consuming huge amounts of coal or India? Or even the United States that sources 20% of all of its energy comes from coal? And the answer is, not at all. So what we're doing is we're going to increase the price of energy significantly in Canada to Canadians, to ordinary Canadians, middle-class Canadians, low-income Canadians, because we all heat our house. People Remind people, in January, it gets really cold, minus 10, minus 20, minus 30. We have to heat our house. And, and so what they're doing is they're going to be whacking us with this tax on these um, um, uh, fossil fuels that we use, um, and, and it's not at the end of the day going to change China's behavior, it's not going to change the United States' behavior, and it's not going to change um, India's behavior. One more thing, Scott. The logic behind the carbon tax, so everybody understands, and I get their logic, it's classical economics, and the uh, logic is, can be stated very simply. If you make the price of a particular good or service more expensive, each of us will use less of it. It's called supply and demand and, and economizing. Mm-hmm. The price of something goes up, we buy less of it. The price goes down, we buy more of it. When big screen TVs were $5,000, $10,000 each, hardly anybody bought a big screen TV. Mm-hmm. Price falls below 1000 we all go and buy big screen TVs. Really simple logic. And so what they're doing is they're saying, we want to encourage Canadians to change their behavior. What behavior? Using fossil fuels. Well, there is some logic, although I don't agree with them, <laughs> there is some logic when it comes to transportation. Because most of us live in cities, and we don't have to drive our car to work, even though 80% of Canadians do, according to StatsCan. In other words, we can walk to work, we can bicycle to work, we can take the bus to work, we can take the metro to work, because some of our bigger cities do have a, a, an underground metro, such as Montreal, Vancouver, uh, Calgary, uh, Toronto, uh, or take the bus or carpool. So there's where we can change our behavior. I'm not saying we want to. I don't want your listeners to think I'm advocating that. I'm saying we can. Now let's turn to home heating. Is there anybody who seriously believes that there are serious alternatives to heating our homes with natural gas or or home heating oil? Hmm. 80% of households in Canada use the two. There is no way in God's green earth that we can all switch massively overnight to electricity. First off, the cost is thousands and thousands of dollars for every house to retrofit the house. And secondly, the grid at each of the provinces could not sustain the um, radical increase in demand if everybody, all those households, went and switched. So their purpose of a carbon tax is to cause us to change our behavior, but I'm saying with home heating, we are not able to change our behavior because alternative technologies do not exist in a wide scale today. So they're going to be taxing us to go do something they know we cannot do unlike transportation, where at least, yes, you could take the bus, although I don't, quite frankly. I could walk to work. I don't. I could bicycle to work. I don't. At least there are some alternatives there, uh, unpleasant as they may be. With home heating, I argue there are no legitimate alternatives, serious alternatives, that large numbers of Canadians can switch to that are not fossil fuel-based. So that's why I suggest that the carbon tax is a little bit dishonest, when they say, when the polit- not the tax, but the politicians in advocating it, and saying, we're doing this to encourage you to change your behavior and stop using fossil fuels. Well, <laughs> I can't change my behavior and all the millions and millions of households in this country who heat their homes with natural gas, as I do, or heat their home with oil, because there is no serious, credible mass alternative in Canada to heating your homes in the winter, except for natural gas or uh, oil. Should natural gas be exempt? Well, I have argued this. You just asked something I'm, I'm very, very important. All fossil fuels are not equal. Hmm. The Charter of Rights does not apply to fossil fuels. <laughs> that is to say there's worse fossil fuels and there's better fossil fuels. I have no problem, and I've said this before, I've been saying this on the CBC on the, on the Money Program, I have no problem declaring war on coal. Because we know, I just got back from Poland, teaching in Poland, and Poland uses a huge amount of coal because they have huge coal deposits in Poland. And I said, I, I understand why environmentalists hate coal. 
it is really, really, first off, it's not only really filthy in the sense of GHG emissions, it's filthy, period. Mm -hmm. I have been to Beijing where they burn huge amounts of coal, and, and I do not smoke cigarettes whatsoever. I don't smoke anything. And, and after one day in Beijing, it's like I smoked a pack of cigarettes because mm. the air is so bad. The, the air that people walk around breathing is so bad because they use huge amounts of coal to heat their homes, to heat their factories, heat offices, and, and it's really, really bad for your health. So let's declare war on coal and say let's eliminate it. But they should be exempting, to come to your question, they should be exempting natural gas as the bridge, what Bill Gates himself calls the bridge fuel to the future. And to a, the, uh, in other words, from now to the middle of the century, when he thinks there will be a breakthrough in mass storage that will allow us to store electricity, which we can't do now. Natural gas is the cleanest of all the fossil fuels. It is vastly cleaner than coal. So we should be not almost trying to eliminate it, as they were suggesting only two or three weeks ago in the Ontario government, they were actually floating a rumor that they were going to prevent new houses from using natural gas. Until yeah. so there was such a backlash against them that they backed down very quickly. We should be instead embracing natural gas as a bridge fuel that is not perfect, but it's vastly better than coal, and using that as to get us to the future. In other words, encouraging the, ex the shipment of, of uh, natural gas to the States, to, to uh, India, to China, to get them to switch from the filthy, dirty coal to the much, much cleaner natural gas and thereby reduce the amount of GHG going into the atmosphere every year. It would ha By the way, people don't realize this. In the last five years, the United States, their total uh, output of GHG went down dramatically. Why did it go down dramatically? Because tons of Americans switched from coal, which Obama, through a whole bunch of administrative decisions at the Environmental Protection Agency, they made coal more and more expensive and more and more difficult to use because of these legal regulations. So what did people do? They switched to natural gas. And what happened? The United States actually achieved a huge reduction in their annual emissions of GHG because people were switching from filthy, dirty coal to the much cleaner natural gas. And yet environmentalists just make this implicit assumption that all fossil fuels are equal, they're not, and say, we're going to whack all of you regardless even though we should be acknowledging that some fossil fuels, such as natural gas, are much better, relatively speaking, than some others, and we shouldn't be punishing people uh, for using them, and especially why, when there's no alternative to them to heat your home. Ian, and why, why isn't the Prime Minister selling that? Because in a sense he is, because he's being hard on carbon, yet he's encouraging pipelines uh, yeah. to be built, as the one he just approved out west. Yeah. So in a sense he is doing that. Why doesn't he just spell it out the way you did? Um, I, I've thought about this. Believe me, I have thought about it. I think there's no question about the influence of Gerald Butt, who is his, apparently his closest confidant and advisor. Gerald Butt was at the, the president, the executive director of the, wherever the title was, of the World Wildlife Federation, which is an environmental group, who is dedicated to, guess what, the elimination of fossil fuels in the world. And, uh, and remember, Gerald Butt was the architect of the, uh, the uh, Ontario government's electricity program that so many people are upset about now. So I think that's part of it. And to answer your question about the pipeline, it's because he realizes that uh, he needs Christy Clark very badly on board. And Christy Clark has made it crystal clear, I'm not on board unless you approve that, that pipeline for liquefied natural gas, because there's, it's an enormous amount of investment that's going to lead to a very significant number of jobs. And so he is a politician in the real world, and I don't mean that pejoratively. Politicians want to be reelected. I've never heard of a politician that wants to get defeated in the next election, no, regardless of the political party. And so I think he did the pipeline deal because it's good, it, it's good for politics, it's good for votes, it's going to produce lots of jobs, and that's going to make lots of people, voters happy. So that's why he did that. But why he's being so heard, so uh, anti-carbon across the board, I, I mean, I attribute it to partly to Gerald uh, uh, Butts, but I'm not trying to turn him into some evil Rasputin type of character. I think that let's give him full credit. I mean, Prime Minister Trudeau, he has bought in fully to the environmental message or belief that all fossil fuels are bad, are, are equally bad. And I, as I've said, I just don't believe that. But I mean, there, I, there are some serious, educated, intelligent people that I know who tell me they're all bad, and we should be banning them all and not recognizing that we can't just do it in a single hop because it's going to take years 
to make these transitions and transformations uh, to an alternative energy future. It's going to take breakthroughs in mass storage technology, and Bill Gates himself has said that, and he's investing hundreds of millions of his own money into um, storage uh, technology research um, because he said we can't make the transition until we can store the electricity. Yeah. And, and so I just wish the prime minister was more nuanced. I'm not uh, condemning him for saying we've got to go to a, uh, a less carbonated uh, future. Uh, I get that. But I wished he was more nuanced in saying, okay, we're going to get start by eliminating the dirtiest ones first, and then later on in 5, 10, 15 years, we'll work up the, the chain, so to speak, to the, to the cleaner fossil fuels to shift them over to uh, renewables as the technology unfolds and becomes more feasible. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about energy and how we tax it. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, a recent poll by Angus Reid says that Canadians prefer that minorities do more to fit in with mainstream Canada rather than encourage cultural diversity. Uh, Some Muslims in Toronto believe this is a Canadian way of asking, how do we get to know more about our neighbours? That's a great way to look at it. Uh, but how do we how do we balance all of this? To talk more about it all, Rahil Raza is with us, Muslim-Canadian journalist, author, public speaker, a media consultant, anti-racism activist, and is with us now. Good afternoon, Rahil. How are you Good today? Afternoon. I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time. We always enjoy when you are on. Thank you so much. Uh, what, okay. is your, what is your uh, thoughts on this poll? What is your reaction to it? I think it's an excellent poll, and I think that it's... Uh, um, a little bit too late in coming. This is something we should have talked about years ago when waves of immigrants were coming here. It is really important for immigrants who come to Canada or any other country to uh, try to integrate, uh, assimilate, pick up, you know, just uh, share values. And unfortunately, um, under the umbrella of official multiculturalism, uh, we have tended to be more ghettoized as minority communities instead of being uh, part of the mainstream. So I think that uh, this um, Angus Reid poll has come at a very good time. It should give us a wake-up call, and we should all be talking about this publicly. So what are we missing, Rahil? What are we doing wrong here? How are we approaching this? How should we be approaching this? Well, multiculturalism is this idea that every minority is a monolith, that, you know, uh, you, you uh, sort of look at minorities. Let's say, for example, the Muslims. There is no such thing as the Muslims. Muslims come from almost 60 different parts of the mm-hmm. world in Canada. They are very diverse within the diversity. So within the minorities, there are minorities. And what happens is that when you look at this, uh, you know, lumping uh, people under one minority label, you are not, uh, we are not addressing the individual rights of people, the individual needs of people. So we need to change this this term multiculturalism to something like omniculturalism, which would be that all of us need, to, we, we are Canadian first. You know, I, I came here to be not a hyphenated uh, Canadian Pakistani, but a Canadian. And it's important that, um, you know, me and my family integrate into uh, the larger, larger Canadian diaspora. We talk about values and we share values. And this does not at any point mean that I have to give up my heritage or my values because, you know, Canada is a liberal democracy. It allows us to be who we are. But at the same time, we come here by choice. It's important to understand what makes Canada tick, teach our children about Canadian sports, about politics, about culture. And unfortunately, multiculturalism doesn't really allow you to do that. You know, it tells you that you live in your ghettos. You may even get some funding to continue with your own cultural heritage and your own languages and doesn't encourage this kind of integration. And I speak um, with feeling because I've just returned two days ago from a fact-finding trip to Europe where I went to three countries. I went to France, to Sweden, and to Germany. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you uh, that, that those countries are falling apart, and it is because of this wishy-washy policy of multiculturalism. Uh, the minorities have not integrated, and the fault lies on both sides. It's not a question of who's at fault. So when we have an Angus poll like the one that has just come out, we should really think about it. We should talk about it in classrooms. We should talk about it in community centers. Uh, we should. I'm so glad that we're discussing this now because it's a very important factor for the future of Canada, a country that we call home, because it helps 
people, newcomers, feel part of the mainstream. Hmm. You know, I often thought, uh, you, you often hear in these discussions, it's about celebrating our differences. And I often thought, wouldn't it make more sense to celebrate our similarities? Yes, absolutely. And I'll tell you, I was naive enough to think that that is what multiculturalism was about. And it was a wake-up call to see that, no, uh, you know, differences keep us separate. Differences keep us keep us apart. We definitely need to celebrate our similarities and we also need to talk constantly about values, about Canadian values. You know, our MP got slammed for saying Canadian values, but these are the values that brought people like me to Canada. You know, the values of gender equality, the values of respect and tolerance for everyone following a different path, Uh, you know, a liberal democracy, freedom of speech. Uh, so all of these are the values that have brought many of us from our countries where theocracy reigns or where there is no democracy to a country like Canada. So then we must talk about these values. But somehow um, it's a no-no to talk about Canadian values, but it's okay to talk about everybody else's heritage and culture. And, you know, it brings me back to the whole issue of not being able to say Merry Christmas. When you, um, you know, overlook or oppress the the mainstream Judeo-Christian culture that we are living in and promote everybody else's culture, then it creates resentment. And I've seen this. This is happening all across Europe, and I never want to see this happen in Canada. So it's, it's a great thing. We need to have these conversations. We need to talk about what is it that makes us Canadian. Uh, Muslim, uh, some Muslim leaders in the press today are saying, uh, what else can we do? What else, what else can the Muslim community do uh, to bridge the gap? How would you address that? Oh, they will, there's a lot they can do. How much do the children in these communities know about Canadian sports, about Canadian heroes, about Canadian history? Uh, you know, this is now our home, so we need to learn about these things. So that is what they can do. They can make their children proud Canadians first, and then they can be anything else they want. It does not take away from their religious identity, does not take away from their heritage and the heritage of their parents. But this next generation of children, like my children, who call themselves Canadian, and there is no conflict there. That's exactly how it should be. So we need to talk more about what it means to be Canadian, and this this way... Uh, the next generation will feel empowered. You bring up a val- you bring up a valid point about the next generation. Twenty years from now, thirty years from now, will we be having these discussions? Or 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 like I hope and- not. <laughs> I hope not. It means if we are having this discussion ten years from now, it means we haven't done our job as parents and as civil society and as political leaders. So it should not be politically incorrect to talk about what it means to be a Canadian. Twenty years from now, we want the next generation. And as a Muslim and as president of uh, Muslims Facing Tomorrow, one of our mandates is to have an indigenous Canadian Muslim identity for our youth. Hmm. So, you know, and that is the, the, the Canadian part of it is an important factor in this conversation. But uh, multiculturalism doesn't really allow that, you know, as I said, it ghettoizes communities. So we need to put that aside. We need to just celebrate our diversities and at the same time talk about what it is that brought us here. Think about it for a moment, you know. Why would one leave a homeland and come to another country to call it home? There must mm. be something that attracts us that pulls us here, and it is these Canadian values that I spoke about. Why is it that some feel they can preserve their heritage and still be Canadian in the country, but some think not? Well, I think that it works both ways. There's nothing wrong in preserving your heritage. It's something Mm -hmm. that comes automatically. You know, I was born and brought up in Pakistan, both me and my husband, and my children respect that very much, and they're parts of it that they have automatically inherited. But in their mind, they're totally Canadian. They've grown up here. So they know more about what, you know, what Canada is, Canadian sports, Canadian culture, Canadian music, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, but to thrust uh, the heritage of the native land down the throat of our children and our next generation is not fair. It's okay to celebrate your heritage. But at the same time, one cannot bypass what it is, as I said, what it means to be Canadian. Does this question get asked in schools? What does it mean to you to be a Canadian? It's very imp- They talk about their heritage all the time. You know, diversity is so important. and Multiculturalism allows or encourages young people to speak about where they've come from or where their parents have come from. But what about being here? 
What about being here and now? Let's also talk about what it means to be Canadian. This is what I want to see is a balance of Canadian values in tangent with our own cultural values, bringing out the best of both of us. Uh, You said you weren't surprised by the outcome of the survey. Why do you think this is happening now? Why is it that people are surprised? Uh, The the headline that I'm reading uh, is Canadians aren't as accepting as we think, uh, and we can't ignore it, writes Angus Reid. It it seems as if we're insulted or stunned to hear this information. Well, I don't think uh, that uh, that is the case. I think that people are waking up to see that, you know, excessive... Uh, a cultural accommodation, uh, just holding on to the excess baggage from the countries that we come from. And for many immigrants, that happens. We, b- we bring a lot of excess cultural baggage and you, they hang on to it. In fact, it, the irony is that, you know, when, when I go back to Pakistan, I see that they have progressed way ahead, while many of us here are still holding on to huh. what we left behind 20 years ago. That's, and, and that's an interesting, that's a very interesting observation. It is. It is, you know, and, and I've seen this time and again, and I think it has happened with every wave of immigrants that have arrived into Canada. So every one of them has faced challenges, and there is one generation that doesn't even speak the language. I've seen this among the Italians. I've seen this, you know, among the Irish. So the the, the point is that uh, language is a very important component of integration and assimilation. And the other uh, thing is that many people don't understand what it means to integrate and assimilate. They think that it means that we must all be the same and we must lose our heritage and our own cultural values. That's not what it's about. You know, to integrate means to be part of the larger whole. You brought up a valid point. I mean, this there's nothing new here. I mean, my parents did it the same way. Uh, my mother came here uh, as a young teenager, knew nothing, and spoke with a funny accent. Uh, every every generation goes through this. Is this any different, or is it different because there's a language barrier, because it's a different religion? Is that is that the sticking point? Well, yes, the religion definitely has a role to play with it. Now, we are living in a country where, you know, we we obviously hope that there is separation of church and state. We don't want to push religion in the public sphere or in the public square, and that's sometimes very difficult for people to understand who come from theocracies. You also have to understand that many migrants come, especially from uh, Muslim lands. They come from countries where law enforcement is, is not a friendly face, where, you know, there's trauma, there's wars. There's all sorts of uh, social traumas. But when they come here, uh, I think that it takes time, and we have to be willing to give that time. But, you know, 20 years uh, after living in Canada, if you can't speak at least one of the languages, then I think that there's a problem there. Hmm. You Uh, talked about Europe and your recent uh, travels there. Many thought years ago that was was how it was done, that that, that they were were the leading example. What's happened there, and, and, and how do they rebalance that? Well, what's happening in Europe is very complicated, and in in every country it's a different ethos. Yeah. You know, it's in France, it's the colonization. It is, uh, you know, the, the colonization of the North African countries. It is a problem, a social economic problem. This pushback. But what happens is that when after one or two generation, um, migrants coming into a country have absolutely not assimilated at all, mm-hmm. then this is a big question that needs to be discussed from both sides, from by the government and. Everybody is culpable in this. It's not a one-sided problem. Uh, You know, sometimes migrants are told, okay, this is an area just for you. All of you live here because you're all alike and you're going to get along with each other. When we came, we wanted to live in an area where we found diverse people. You know, we did, it, we, it was not necessary for us to live uh, in an area that was like a ghetto of just people who came from where we, where we came from. Mm-hmm. We came to Canada to mix and mingle and to learn from Canadians, and it's a learning process. It's a journey. But the ideology, the thinking has to change. If we come to Canada, then we must be Canadian first. The idea, you know, Canadian citizenship is a privilege. It's not something that we should take lightly. And with it comes a sense of responsibility. So this is not a one-way street that we just expect that everything will be handed to us on a platter. There has to be an effort made. It's a constant dialogue with our children, with our grandchildren, with the next generation. And I come from, you know, my family is very mixed. Um, You know, there is Mexican blood, and my sons have married, uh, you know, diversely. So my grandchildren straddle different cultures and different faiths, but we talk about it. 
Hmm. You know, they're Canadian first. What does it mean to be Canadian? And what is your heritage? The respect for the heritage is important. But if we're going to grow up here and if we're going to live here, we have to talk more about Canada. We have to talk more about Canadian values and not thrust our own uh, religious heritage into the public square. It's not the only thing that's important. That's a private matter. Rahil Raz is with us, Muslim-Canadian journalist. Rahil, you said something that, uh, you know, you said they haven't assimilated. Haven't we been taught assimilation is a bad word? Well, that's what I'm saying. People think that it is a bad word. But it's what you want it to be. Uh, you know, it's it's not being forced to, to change yourself completely. It's to be part of the mainstream. I look upon the, the word assimilation and integration as meaning that you are part of the larger whole. You are not just one box on the side where, you know, you just live your life in that, you know, in that little circle and you never get out of it to know what is happening in the larger part of the world or the country. And, you know, the world is a global village now. Its uh, borders are not the same as they used to be. Uh, We are able to connect with our heritage far easier than we did, let's say, 50 years ago. Uh, You know, travel is much Mm -hmm. easier. So there's no problem. Why should one be insecure that somehow, if you say you're Canadian, you're going to lose whatever other heritage you have? What what can we learn from uh, this issue and apply to our indigenous peoples? H- how what can we learn from all of this and apply to them? Well, it's a two way street is what we can learn. You know, um, integration is not something that just happens from from one community. It has to be a two way street. There has to be a mutual respect and understanding of traditions and heritage and culture. That goes without saying. But at the same time, the process of integration can't be forced. It's something that has to come organically. It has to be discussed. It has to be debated. And unfortunately, we don't discuss and debate these issues enough because people are so frightened of Mm. speaking about these issues. People are so afraid that somehow if they talk about integration, it's going to make uh, make them a racist. But one shouldn't be afraid. Every Canadian citizen has a right to question uh, how migrants are coming and settling into this country, they, because it affects all of us. It affects the education system, affects the social fabric of the country. So we should not be afraid to question if a community is not integrating. This is discussions that should take place. Rahil, website we can go to to find out more about what you're doing? Yes, um, I'm involved with the Muslim Reform Movement, so it's www.muslimreformmovement.org. And my own website is muslimsfacingtomorrow.com. Rahil Raza has been with us, Muslim-Canadian journalist, author, public speaker, media consultant, anti-racism activist. Rahil, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Pleasure. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.